Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And we are joined today by a comedy writer and musician who's written for Charlie Brooker, Philomena Kunk, Viz, and some rather successful Ladybird books. Uh, it is Jason Hazley. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. And, um, and on top of everything else, you also play key- keyboards for Portishead now and then. Uh, yeah, when they go out on tour, which is, um, is not... Not often, so must it, it must be said. That's an unusual string to the bow, but actually, it would seem so, but knowing you started out as a musician and were yes. part of a Ben and Jason yes. music, and yeah, who yeah, did I was some in a, songs that I still listen to on Spotify and are rather amazing. wonderful. You're, you're one of the three people who does that. <laughs> yes, that's right. um, you're yeah. welcome to that one and a half pence's right. worth of um, Spotify checks. If you listen to it enough hundred times, then uh, you know I probably will get one and a half pence for it, yeah. Um, I'm... I've only the thing is that I, sometimes people find my biography a bit confusing because they're going well what well, what is he is he this or is he that and the answer is I can I'm only doing the things the two things that I'm any good at that's it which are that's all I'm doing is writing comedy and playing music the only two things I'm any good at right. like for instance writing music I'm not very good at that okay so when Ben and I were working together he wrote the tunes I wrote the words in the main and then we would you know mess with each other's work. Same. Right. As any partnership does. Mm. Uh, so take us back. So, um, so was was it was it normally the plan when you were starting out to go into music and then comedy sort of came along or how did how did that how did you sort of transition for one because obviously you still do music but you're predominantly a writer and that's how you got into the yeah um, bestseller list. <laughs> I think what when Joel and I started out, I've always written with Joel Joel Morris, my writing partner. Um, when when we were um, teenagers, we met, we met her in sixth form at school, right? We were banned from the playing fields um, for running away from balls. <laughs> um, so they said, go and do something useful. And they sent us both to uh, uh, an ancient institution called the Computer Room, uh, where we were tasked with typing up a school newsletter. And what would happen is that all these little bits of paper were coming from the teachers and the you know, the, uh, the PTA and people like that, with their handwritten scrawl on it, we would type it into this computer about the size of a caravan. <laughs> and then a school newsletter would come out with the crest on the top and in the right font and everything. And what we discovered is that we were both big comedy fans. And what you don't do to two 17-year-old comedy fans is give them access to the means of production. Because <laughs> what happened is that after about a fortnight, there was a parody newsletter going around under the desk which looked exactly like the real thing, but was full of nonsense. And basically, if I put a Ladybird book in front of you now, I'd be saying, we're still doing exactly the yeah, same yeah, thing. We haven't yeah. moved an inch. Because yeah. <laughs> some people will know... Um, We'll know the family examiner. Yes, which, which is the same thing again. Which, in, which, how soon after, how, when did that come along? It came along a long time after, because what happened was that Joel and I got a little bit of paid work. We sold our first sketch to Russ Abbott in 1990. Well, what possessed you to send sketches to Russ Abbott off the television? Good question. What happened was this. Joel's dad had been at school with the comedy writer Ian Davidson. Yes. who, along with Peter Vincent, wrote Sorry. Yep. And Ian was also um, Barry Humphrey's writer for many, many yeah. years. And two, and two Ronnies and stuff. Yes, yeah. and two Ronnies. So Joel's dad dropped Ian a line and said, would you indulge my son and his friend, please, because they'd like to write comedy. And Ian said, yeah, of course, come and meet me. So we went to, we went to see him and we showed him some sketches. 
And he said, actually, you can do this. Um, So why don't you do this? I'll introduce you to Peter Vincent. He's currently script editing the Russ Abbott show along with Barry Cryer. So we went and saw Peter and he said, well, just write some stuff. You know, who? You know, here's what a script looks like. Um, here's who the actors are. Just try some stuff. So we wrote a few things and they eventually bought something. Um, and that was in 1990. And then we both... Uh, Were you... We, mo- we both moved to London then. Right. And then... Uh, we tried to do some stuff for weekending. We used to go to the open door meeting at weekending. You know? What sort of year was this? This, is, this will now be around 92. Right. Or okay. So ni- it's yeah, still 92. going strong weekending at this Strong-ish, point. Strong-ish, yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I, I, I got the dregs in the late 90s. There were lots okay. of people whose, whose faces are now very familiar in that room. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we were in the same room as... Um, I, I wonder whether Armando would have been there. I should ask. I've got a friend who yeah, wrote the complete he, he book about weekend. I should left. ask him. He know had he? He had just left around about that time. Yeah, that been more to go off and do the day today probably. Yeah, that well, on the hour. I think. On the hour. Yeah. Sorry, on the hour. Yes, on the hour. Yeah. Well, it started as up your news. Uh, ah. That's where that's where the first use of uh, the, the various characters came came alive. Mm. Partridge and. Uh, uh, Dunes characters and things, and um, that was in 1990. And so then up and day to day, and loose talk and things were 90. Actually, yes, he was still. He was still been at BBC right, yeah. in 92. So anyway, there you were. But we, but we got nothing away. We right, sold yeah. nothing to weekending at all, and we would go through this slightly boring process of writing pages and pages of material, faxing them to the production office. Kids yes. love faxing. Faxing, right? yes, um, that's right. And never got the Instagram of its day. Very much. <laughs> Never got anything away. Well, um, the Betamax. The Betamax of this day, I think. And we, so we gave up yeah. um, eventually. We just thought, oh, we can't do this. And we both drifted off into other things. Joel went to work in a bookshop. I went to work for a music publisher. And then we both started independent bands. Um, and then we found out just how little money there is to be made in music. <laughs> yes. I know, um, pack this writing in, that's, there's oh. no money in that, I'm off to make music. And at some oh. point, I know, I know, idiots, all <laughs> yes. the right, fi- all the financial acumen, yeah. really. And not um, just that, it's just actually getting a band together to rehearse as well. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's very different now, when you, get, when you go out on tour with Portishead, because it's a massive operation and it's really well looked after, you, you sort of, basically you turn up um, and go on stage or go into the rehearsal um, and then come off and go home. And in between those bits, they, they, they move you from A to B and put you in a nice hotel yeah. and feed you and water you and that yeah. sort of thing. But, when, but when, you're, yeah, when you're a small band, though, you're, you're, you're carrying your own equipment, you're doing your own promotion. I mean, it's a very exhausting gig. Mm. Um, and we found Ben and And also, at that point, you don't even know who you are. No. Because that's the thing about Portishead, is we know what Portishead is. Yes. And everyone who goes to see them knows what it is. And they know what they're trying to do. Yeah. Whereas a band in its early days is like, who are we? What are we trying to do? Yeah, like, especially if you are in your twenties and you sort of haven't, you haven't yet, you know, your landscape hasn't yet cooled sufficiently <laughs> that there aren't still some things bubbling here yeah, and there. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we, so Ben and I gave that up because we just it wasn't making any money and we were we were running out of luck, I think. And around around the same time, Joel and I got back together again and revisited an idea that we'd done again when we were in sixth form, which is which was then done, it was a parody of a local newspaper called the Framley Examiner, 
And we had to do it then by, by using Letraset and photocopying things and cutting up and sticking up and pasting and then photocopying the pages. Well, of course, now, by the time we came to do it again, which was sort of 2001, I think, we had desktop publishing. So we were working on, um, what was it called? Qu- uh, Quark Express. Quark Express was the industry um, standard. Which was the industry standard then, no longer. Um, so we found, okay, well, we can do this. And we, Joel had been doing a little bit of work for the website that was attached to the program Attachments. <laughs> and also working on that was... Which was the BBC... Attachments was BBC Two's <sighs> brazen attempt to kickstart another This Life, wasn't it? Yes, yes. exactly yes, that. Yes. And right. also... But David Williams was in it. Yeah, and it had yes. comedy writers were kind of um, yeah. seconded to it. It was an right. attempt to... It, was, it felt it like a, a, yeah. it was a... It was a This Life designed by a committee, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And had all the prospects thereof. Yeah. And the so the website, also working on the website, were... Dave McCandless, who's gone on to write um, Information is Beautiful, which is a brilliant, brilliant book, um, and someone called Charlie Brooker. Ah. Charlie, at the time, w- had a little website called TV Go Home, mm-hmm. ah. which was a parody of the Radio Times. So Joel got talking to Charlie and said, how do you do this website thing? And he said, well, you just buy a domain, and then you just put stuff up there. It's really easy. So we thought, well, we could try this with the family examiner. So we bought the domain name, which cost £25, and there were four of us writing it at this point. Myself, Joel, Joel's brother Alex Morris, and our friend Robin Halstead. And we actually had to scrape coins out of bits of furniture to afford this £25 website hosting <laughs> okay. fee. Um, and we put up, we wrote and designed, I think, eight pages. Um, and we put them up on this website, and we sent an email to just a handful of friends, maybe eight friends each, something like that, and by the end of the day, other people were sending us emails saying, you should look at this, it's really funny, you might like this. <laughs> and within two weeks, we had two book offers. Wow. One from Penguin, and one from Fourth Estate, I think it was, or no, Ebury. Um, so we went with Penguin, who have published everything we've done ever since. Um, and the website got noticed by comedy people, um, we wrote a few things for Charlie for TV Go Home, which he used, but he did say, look, these are really good and you know it, so piss off and do your own thing. <laughs> um, so we so we went off and did our own thing. And then people's producers started contacting us and saying, this is really good. Can you, do you want to come and talk to us about doing something or other? And that's how we sort of ended up then... We were sort of uh, the... The, the fluff that got caught to, in the sort of comedy Velcro, you know. Mm. So that's when we ended up... We started writing a few bits and pieces for... Um, Mitchell and Webb um, they needed a tour programme written for a tour that they were doing so we wrote and designed this tour programme for them that was the first thing we did for them and then we ended up writing some sketches for the radio series and the TV series and out of that came uh, lots of other TV work we got an agent who at that time was inside Talkback so that was quite helpful um, so we ended up doing writing a lot of material for the second series of Manstroke Woman yeah, which was really good to. That's a, a great. It was a great place to try things out because you weren't. We weren't allowed to do any of the things we normally like, which is pastiche, parody, mm. um, 
pretend adverts, historical things, ludicrous things. It all had to be real and possible and happening right now mm. and set now with ordinary right. people. And it had a cracking cast as yeah, well. Yeah. And I look back on that now and think, I wrote for Nick Frost. I wrote for Amanda Abington. Yeah, yeah, I wrote yeah. for Nick Burns. You know, these amazing actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a real thrill to do that. And it was slightly tucked away, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was. It well, was there were three, weren't there? There were three identical... Identical in proposal sketch series at the time. There was that one. There was one called Spoons, yeah. which Charlie, well, I think yeah. there was Charlie's baby that one. And there was a third one, which I can't remember. One was BBC Two, one was Channel Four, one was ITV. Yeah, they were kind of they were all pretty much yes. close to a twenty-something relationships. Yes, yeah. yeah. they were show all now. very present tense, yeah. you know. Mm. And and but uh, that's. I mean, there's still stuff in in Manstreet Woman that I'm enormously proud of. Our showreel, which we don't tend to use very often because no one wants to see it, um, begins with one of my favourite sketches we've ever written, which was Nick Frost um, playing a man who's just coming to the end of his first date and he's got the girl back to his flat. So he brings her in and he's very nervous and says, um, can I take your coat? Um, do you want uh, a glass of wine? And she says, uh, oh yeah, sure, that'd be great, thanks. And he says, uh, red or white? And she says, um, red, I think. And he says, okay, I'll be back in a minute. And scurries out of the room, and she sits there on the on the sofa, sort of arranging herself and making herself look nice and mm. things. And within about fifteen seconds, Nick Frost comes back into the room with his shirt undone, carrying a bowl containing about eighty sausages, <laughs> and sits on the sofa and just starts eating sausages. And she sort of sits there and looks very confused at him. And eventually, and I can't do his delivery any any justice at all. But with a mouthful of sausage, he eventually looks at her and goes. I'm oh, sorry, I didn't have any wine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first thing on our show reel. I'm so proud of it. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of our running themes is how useless men are, and we love writing useless men gags. <laughs> one, I, I, I'm interested that, uh, sorry to go, go quite a long way back, but I mean, this is, this is sort of relevant to, to, to now, but just think about how you mentioned that, that the two things you do are comedy, writing, and music. And that actually, there, there's a lot of. Uh, the, the comedy, comedy and music seemed to meet. Uh, I think when punk happened in the late seventies, and so my mentor, uh, my uncle Paul B Davis, who um, was was in a band in Bristol, and uh, he ran a theatre, surreal theatre company called Crystal Theatre, and he had this uh, punk band called Shoes for Industry, and there was a there was so much comedy and, and music around together, and and I think a lot of what's kind of come out of the 70s and out of alternative comedy came from the sort of musical background. Do you think that's... Yeah, I think there is a lot. I mean, there's so much crossover between comedy and music anyway. If, mm. I, if I think about my, my comedy friends, there are so many of them who are, who are also very good musicians. You know, if you think about someone like um, Jeremy Lim, who's a brilliant pianist. Well, Al Murray um, is fantastic. Al Murray is a great drummer, yeah. Mm. Chris Morris is a very talented guitarist. Kev Eldon is a very talented mm. guitarist. Um, there's an awful lot of it, and you know, the thing, the thing that I think is, is to be handled very carefully is actually doing comedy songs, mm -hmm. because comedy songs have got so many man traps in them. Mm. The biggest one being. Sorry, you're, talking to, you're talking to a man who writes almost all the horrible histories, probably all the horrible histories. Most of them. Songs, most yes, of them. with Richard yeah. Webb. Horrible history stuff is is great and. 
I'm I bleeding on this table. I think I am. Yes, I live on. Jason has coffee. Jason has coffee. bleeds for your. I thought I'd martyred one of my elbows for some reason. I think you've just got a bit rock starish. Yeah, exactly. It could be that. Yeah, yeah. An act of self harm. Comedy songs is a is a bear trap. It's really it's really difficult, isn't it? Because the first thing is the rhyme scheme, so you can see things coming, and then when you can't quite make them work, you then have to do that Latinate word order thing where you switch the word order around. So suddenly the sense has gone from the thing, and you're trying to keep up with it. And I mean, the number. And then you listen to a Tom Lehrer song and think, well, what's the point? I can never do that. (laughs) Professor of mathematics. Tom Lehrer is absolutely extraordinary. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely extraordinary. But someone like Viv Stanshaw, you know, he's he's a a great comic hero of mine, I think, Mm. because he was so relentlessly silly, um, which is a great thing to be. I wonder also that link between music and comedy is that you've got someone who is giving a performance with a piece of art that is designed to be entertaining but has some sort of message slightly underneath it. So a sketch and a pop song are not actually that different. Well, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. true. That's a sort of, that's a sort of formalised way of looking yeah. at it. What, um, that's me. I see that you, it very much is. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll give you my version of it, and my version of it, and I've said this so many times that it might as well be my fucking catchphrase, <laughs> comedy is music. That's what it is. It's mm. about rhythm. It's about yeah. pitch. Yeah. It's about when things happen and the word order and everything. You have to try and get... When you're writing, like the ladybird books, they're very short things. You know, they're about twelve hundred words per book. They're tiny, so each page, you've got twenty-five spreads. I think we have to write. So you're writing it like haiku. You're writing it like our absolute favourite comic book, which is *The Meaning of Lift* by Douglas Adams and mm. John Lloyd. Those things are perfect down to the semi-quaver. Mm. If you try and quote a *Meaning of Lift* thing and get one word wrong or half of a word wrong, you spoil yeah. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. they've got to be right yeah. and I'm a big fan of this I'm a big fan of this comedy is music it really mm. is it's and there's, there's a lot of stuff that will I mean I remember a long time ago working on uh, my family I think and I think they called them JLS's which is a joke like substance yeah. and it's something that sounds like a joke and yeah. has a rhythm of a joke mm, yeah. and the audience will probably laugh at it yeah. and but then if they stop to think, they would go, well, that wasn't even funny. I think I told um, you the story about uh, Rob Colley. And go on. A comedy writer who I uh, worked with many times. And he was Jim Davidson's uh, gag writer for many years. And he on the on Generation live Game? And, yeah. All, all around. And, and he, he used to go to Jim's shows. And Jim Davidson said, look, I can make the audience laugh at anything. Uh, and, and he said, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll show you he said I'm going to do something tonight and it's not a joke but on the, the rhythm of it I, I promise you the audience will laugh and Rob was watching and he watched and he knew the moment it was coming and he got a little signal from yeah. Jim he did, the, he did the thing and he did the rhythm and he got da da and a da 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 big laugh and yeah, little nod to, to yeah. Rob, and, you know, in the audience and things. So you know, it is. There, and yeah, there in is a way, that. though, it's no, it's no coincidence that in the past comedians would do a, mm. they do an hour of material and then finish on a song. Finish on a song, which yeah. Yeah, I think even yeah, yeah. probably Jim Davidson would finish yeah. on a song. Yeah. So you know, Ken Dodd and Lee Evans that, so. actually used to finish with a, on a, like a really serious yeah. song, and the audience would kind of be sitting at the Evans show having. And kind of clutch themselves yeah. in pain, almost yeah. laughing at the physicality, and, and then he sits down and he's, you know, he's a really talented pianist, and he'd play a really you know, desperately sad love song, and they're kind of 
the audience is they're, they're waiting for the the punchline that yeah. never comes. But I, I think with, you know, with, with, with <laughs> well, a, again, that's another yeah. comic structure, yeah, though, isn't it? It's yeah. like leading you somewhere and then yeah. going, oh, right, we're going. But it's the, the end you of the show. You didn't come anywhere. That's what that sausage <laughs> sketch is. I've yes. got you in here. Yeah. You think you know what's going on, and unfortunately, some sausages have arrived. So that's the end of that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? I mean, because it sounds like you've you know you went round the block a couple of times yeah. writing mm. comedy. Yeah. But I wonder if looking back, and you could have talked to the twenty-five-year-old version of yourself or the 19 year old version of yourself whether you would say you're never going to understand this but trust me it's good that it's happening this way do you feel like you should have kept going with what you had while you had it or actually you think the experiences you've had have made you a better writer and I don't know if they've made me a better writer I think just writing makes you a better writer because it's all uh, you know writing is rewriting isn't it you just need to keep going and going getting it better and better and better yeah Um, and so when you're writing songs with as part of Ben and Jason, you were rewriting. You were writing songs. Yeah, yeah. Probably spent more time rewriting them than writing. The them. very first song that we wrote together was a song called "Widow's Walk," and my first lyric sheet of that is dated February '97, and the final one was 14 months later. It took me 14 months to get the lyric right. That's how good a writer I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I've got a but song. But at least, I, at least I kept trying. Well, that's it. Yeah, and I think the secret of the secret of it is not to necessarily get better but to know how long it takes to get it right yes, yes and have the right expectation of what a rewrite actually is but also you have that thing don't you with rewrites where there'll come up there'll come a point when you're doing like phil whelan's had a lovely phrase for this which was um removing something from a script and exchanging it for something of equal value <laughs> is where you go right okay all i'm doing is just writing over the top now i'm not yeah, actually improving yeah, it yeah if it's not better then stop rewriting i, th- I started writing a song um in while i was still doing stand-up uh, in 1988 and the song was called indecisive and it took me seven years to finish that song, <laughs> and it never worked. I mean, that, <laughs> the the could, writing of that song feels like it. a sketch in its own it right. Did, yeah, 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 or a it, film. I could go back to it actually. It's sounding sometime. like that yeah. song. Yeah. What is it? The, the quiet song uh, that um, peace and quiet. Peace and quiet and, by uh, the Barry Cry does. And, uh, Ronnie, yeah. It just gets slowly louder yeah. and louder and louder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or it sounds like Orson Welles is. Don Quixote, right? And it really sort of never quite gets, never quite gets yeah. made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, was there a point at which you um, realised that you think, oh right, we're actually doing this now? But it, it, or did it? It feels like you've you've been sort of slightly making it up as you've gone along, and at no point have you ever felt like you've arrived, and that there's nowhere to arrive to anyway. I think a lot of people listening to the show who are trying to break in thinking that there's something to break into and that there's a secret door and once they've found it, they're sort of in. Yeah, I know. It's the, it's the hardest question to answer, isn't it, when someone says, so how do you get into writing comedy? Mm. And, I, and I, it's, it's a bit like someone asking you, how do I sneeze like you? Like, <laughs> I don't know, because I, I can only sneeze like I sneeze, you know. So mm. I don't know how you get into mm. writing comedy. I can tell you how I got into it. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting about Weekending, because you, you join a long list of uh, people. I mean, we, we always, who, who never we, got material onto <laughs> Weekending. <laughs> we, yeah. we are legion. But, yes. You know, uh, like sort of Richard Curtis yeah. uh, struggled with it, Jeremy Hardy struggled, Aid Edmondson. You know, so you've got... Um, and we, we always... say to people you know you need the best way the quickest way to start out making a living in comedy is writing for Newsjack Um, and some people though you know they try it 
and it doesn't work. So in, in a sense, it's a sort of uh, reasonably encouraging thing to say to yeah, people. Is if the, you don't get yeah. on to news chat, that's not the end of yeah, the world. Yeah, that, that's very true. I think what also is key there is whether the actual programme can sustain the sort of voice that you might have. And yeah. there are two things here. The one thing, obviously, is you should be able to write in-house style. That's a skill that you need to learn. Journalists learn mm. that. You know, when we wrote for Viz, we had to learn Viz House style, which is a sort of wonky tabloid house style. Mm. Um, Charlie, we, we find it really easy to write for Charlie because we write like him anyway. Right. That's how we write. Yeah. So we and will, you've known him for a long time. Yeah, and, and yeah. We will, so we will. We'll have no problem sitting there going, um, how do we describe Adrian Charles? What does he look like? He looks like someone's drawn a face on a thumb. <laughs> um, he looks like he's, but he looks like a, a sausage in a suit. And you end up with thumb in a suit, Adrian yeah. Charles. You know, yeah. or yeah. describing uh, Mumford and Sons as the trust fund Wurzels. You know, <laughs> so we, th- those are things that are in easy reach for us. Yeah. But when we did the one time we did have I got news for you, we were terrible at it. Absolutely hopeless. And for some reason, our style doesn't fit easily into that. And it would take us a long time to learn it. And they don't have time Mm. for people to learn their house style. You've just got to get on board and hit the ground running. And we hit the the ground and fell over, basically. (laughs) So we went there once and we never came back. I had the same thing on 8 out of 10 cats. I did one day on that. I got one gag through, I think, and thought, that's not for me, is it? But on the other hand, when a Kevin Eldon series comes up or a Mitchell & Webb series comes up, we can do that because they they will accept our sort of thing. Yeah. So I think we probably weren't getting stuff into weekending because we're just not very good... Uh, we're not very good at Ryan Look at the Week's News writers. You no, know? yeah. We're definitely... You know the two camps, a Ryan Look at the Week's News and a Sideways Look at Modern Life. And yeah. we're definitely in the Sideways Look at Modern Life bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, at least with News Jack, there's a, it's, a, it's a broader remit. I mean, and yeah. weekending was very much a kind of... A, a, here is a sketch about the big news story and now here's the not such a big news story and has another news story whereas News Jack is much more stand-up led conversational plus you get the, the one-liners but I think that you're right I think the principle still applies if you have that you know, if you have that kind of lost for, for topical comedy <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, and maybe that's but it's important you know, about I think what you're saying is important that to know what kind of writer you are or at least the sort of writer you could be. Yeah, yeah. Is I suppose you and you can try things out to find out which one of those you are. Um, we a lot of people. I don't know whether this is still true, but it certainly was five or six years ago that a lot of comedy writers could get gigs writing for children's TV mm-hmm. um, fairly straightforwardly, and it's a really good skill to learn because sometimes you have to write tiny little stories, so you're just learning little things about story structure, mm-hmm. and also you've got. You've got quite a specific set of tools in your box when you're writing for kids' TV. And you have to do things like... You have to do lots of visual comedy, mm. which is, a you know, again, something we're not brilliant at. We've had some fun with it. Um, and you, you've got a limited vocabulary that you can use as well. But you've also got, weirdly, the freedom to put in things that wouldn't get into shows for yeah. adults because people... Because stupid people or annoying people rather they're not stupid they're clever but annoying will say I think we should take that reference out there I don't think people will get it whereas if you're writing a kids show you can put pretty much any reference in you like and they'll go great yeah because yeah. the, assu- the assumption is not you're not going to lock your audience out if you say a thing that they haven't heard of because mm. kids haven't heard of a lot of things yet because they're small yeah yeah and they're still filling up with information you know yeah. so you can just help throw some more information into them yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, that's the lovely thing with with horrible histories is that you can just throw in um, all sorts of stuff 
And we, when, you know, when we got this, you know, Charles Dickens is a miserable sod. We found out this little snippet of history. So Caroline of Juice said, "Oh, let's do Dickens as Morrissey." So we were able to do. <laughs> it's just wonderful that. My kids and have watched that kids. one so many times, and they must, and, and they know. have no idea who Morrissey is. No, no, exactly. And occasionally they then hear us They'll listen hear to some music, exactly, and they go, "Oh, that sounds like yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I should explain this, kids. There's a singer called Morrissey, and yeah. he does songs that sound like this. Yeah. Oh, um, it's the horrible history song. I mean, I tried to. Um, it was. Only, I tried to play my kids. Um, Charles, the Charles the Second song. Yeah. starts. My name is. Yeah. My name is. Mm-hmm. My name is Charles the Second, mm-hmm. and I just thought. I can't play my kids Eminem because they're nine and seven. <laughs> so they're just going to sort of have to take my word for it on that. I think in the end I found a karaoke version online or something or a... Yeah. Or I played them the, like the first 20, 30 seconds of this song because um, it's a pretty bleak song. Mm. But musically it works. And they're going to... You know, they'll be... And for example, I'm still getting jokes from Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> There's something that you'll see. You'll, walk a, you'll, 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 you'll learn a new fact about Saxon. Or some band yeah. on which yeah. the ba- you know, the Shearer's Party bass, and you go, oh, now I understand <laughs> why in this particular scene he's doing X, or what that is a reference to, or that kind yes. of thing. Yeah, but but the idea that you have to understand everything straight away is. I know it's a, such a hostage to fortune that Horrible Histories is a very good example of this. Partly because it is just such a brilliant series, but also because it contains the thing of saying you're going to learn at the same time as laughing, mm. which, is a, which is a fabulous, a really, really creditable thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, we, we went and had a meeting with um, the QI production team who said, We'd lo- we want to try a QI sketch show. Because John Lloyd's thing was, uh, the reason he started doing QI, he said, is because he, he, he hadn't been learning. He just wanted yeah, to yeah. keep learning. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's, when he started, that's when he started going on a hunt for more and more obscure things, mm. you know. Um, and he wanted to do a sketch show, so he brought a few people in, a few writers, and sat down and said, what, th- is there something in this? It's just a, this is just an in-principle conversation, mm-hmm. here's a cup of coffee and some biscuits. And he said, for instance, like, the first two cars that ever existed in the state of Texas, I think it was, crashed into each other. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a room full of comedy writers went, like, we can write you that now. Yeah. We can write you that now. It's the two guys standing by their cars going... What do you think we should call this event that just happened? You know, <laughs> what are the chances? Yeah, There's yeah. so many ways you can approach a piece of material like that. It didn't happen, which is unfortunate because it feels like such a good idea for a sketch yeah. show—a sketch show in which you, an adult or a child audience, can be either learn stuff. Yeah, mm. I, I think, I think the key would be horrible history does. Which yeah. is, well, the key would be here is a fact. To here is the premise, and, yeah. and here are nine jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With that in mind, here and you I've go. got my my daughter has given me so many bits of information that she's learned from horrible histories over the years. Mm-hmm. And she's and it it made her passionate about history. That's a she's lot now of passionate fun, about yeah. history, yeah. which is what a brilliant thing to have done. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. kids have got about sixty of them stacked up on the Sky Plus box. Have they? Right. And I said, <laughs> guys, you're going to have to start deleting some of these because we are running out of room. Right. <laughs> There's no room left for the test match. For, or for <laughs> elementary or anything like that. It's yeah. infuriating. Yeah. Yes, it's, mm-hmm. yes. My my cricket highlights are hanging on by <laughs> by a thread. Yeah. Um, Part did recorded. you have? Um, at any point, so we talked about the fact that I think people think there is a bit of a door and once they're in and all that kind of stuff. I went, And you talked about your experiences. Did you have any, were you given any particularly good or bad advice along the way that still kind of sticks out? Were there mentors for you? Because it feels to me like you really were 
making this up as you go along and finding stuff and actually because it feels like you've almost created your own style really particularly epitomising the, in the in obviously in the books in the yeah books um, I wonder I mean the, honestly the two the two best pieces of advice I had neither one was from uh, a comedy person the first one was from the composer Michael Finnessy who I studied composition with very briefly when I was a teenager and he said, it's really important not to give a shit about what people think about your work. He said, and he said, it, literally, you can take that down to even if they like it, you shouldn't give a shit what they think. Because right. you're, it's, you're, it's yeah. your thing. It's got, you've got to be what you think of it. Your judgment yeah. is the thing that you have to rely on here. Because that's what you've got. Yeah. And the second piece of advice I got was from uh, a writer called Marcus Gray, who's written two very good books, one about The Clash and one about R.E.M. And he said... If it sticks out for any reason, cut it. Right. Which is a nice piece of advice, because sometimes I'll be sitting there staring at a page and going, Some, there's something wrong here, there's a lump here somewhere. It definitely can't be that bit that I really struggled over and I'm really proud of now, can it? It can't be that yeah. bit, that, 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 <laughs> really, that really purple bit that I worked for about three and a half yes. hours on getting those four words right. It's it so good that it, it definitely sticks can't out. Be that bit, it's not it? that. Yeah. It definitely can't be that bit that sticks out there, can it? You know? <laughs> and you sort of think, okay, yeah, I know, kill your darlings. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's... Yeah, that's interesting. So neither were comedy writers. No, no. I think that's interesting. Also, it's interesting that um, I remember hearing a... Well, I, I read a letter from one of Penn and Teller, I can't remember which, to a, I think I mentioned this in the podcast before, to a, uh, a younger magician um, and how to, how to do magic. And this sort of younger magician had written to saying, well, the sort of magic I want to do is the sort of magic that you are already doing, so what do I do now? Um, and I think one of the bits of advice was, go off and do something else and be passionate about something else. Mm. You know, and if you're, but imagine being really into Picasso what sort, of magi- what sort of magic would Picasso have done? What sort of yeah. magic, if you're really into Bach, what sort of magic would Bach have done? And well, actually mm-hmm. taking a different discipline and applying it to comedy, I think is a really interesting... And, it's, and, you, and you've come at it from the music angle. They're all, which they're, that's all that thought experiment stuff is always yeah. helpful, isn't it? Yeah. It's always worth shaking up the way you look at something. Yeah, and oh. rather than try to get rid of who you are and your sort of natural non-comedy interests, no, 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 that's... That's all it. Bring it all in, because otherwise you're just writing. You're mechanically writing jokes like an algorithm. Uh, yeah, I mean, for instance, we, which is hard, and you know, we've um, one of the things that we've noticed over the years when we put our showreel together, its its actual title is something like um, some sort of showreel or something. It's got a, one of those hilarious titles like that. What we originally called it was more jokes about television and food, because those are the only two things we ever seem to write gags about. They're either food gags or television gags. Right. And we th- also, it sounds like a great Lost Talking Heads album. Or undertones, of course. Yeah, true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's so you, or we, even a television. We fact. get so you get. I think you spot. You saw, I mean, though it doesn't matter, I think you can spot your ticks and go, yeah, I know where I'm going with this. You know, we, we, we recently, um, we auctioned, we joined a, a, the auction for Authors for Grenfell Tower. Um, and we, sold, we, go, we put a set of the books in there for nothing and said, we'll deface them in any way you like. Um, and it, Ray, I think they've got, they sold for £450. And, uh, and the, the guy who uh, won them um, is a younger comedy writer. And he, and, so we basically we said to him what do you want us to do and he said I don't know you do what you like 
So we thought, I'll tell you what, we'll annotate them. <laughs> so we've gone through these books and we've annotated them and said, oh, that's, um, that dog is named after my mate Louis's dog. You know, <laughs> right, or, right. Um, this is, and then we found out we started to write about how they were written as well. And we were writing things like, we seem to be quite fond of this gag structure. <laughs> and looking, looking through all these books in, in quick succession, you yeah. go, oh man, I can really see what we're doing now. This yeah, is this quite is distressing. Right. Going, that, that gag structure that does exactly what the title of that showreel does, which mm. is something or other, you know, and Joel, uh, I, I said, we've done this gag structure two or three times here now. Um, it's like he is, there's some, something about a guy who's bought the insides of a lighthouse off eBay um, and he's put them in the front of his shop because he hopes to make some point or other. Um, and this, that was in the Ladybird Book of the Hipster. And, yeah. and Joel wrote, I think we've nicked this structure from Douglas Adams. I think he liked the something or other at the end of a line. Right, right. yeah. So you sort of, you begin to see your ticks, you know, yeah. as well as finding, oh, there's some more jokes about television and food. Yeah, it's jolly yeah. good, you know. Yeah. Even the guy who yeah. bought the thing off, uh, the, the hipster who bought the insides of a lighthouse off eBay. His name is Tiswaz. So there you go. This is immediately. <laughs> well, you put that thing up on, um, on Twitter occasionally and there's a, the, the joke amnesty and there's a, a lot of these lines, uh, people just think these are lines that are out there, like too much information, um, which just <laughs> yeah. are lines that were written in shows like Friends, but people just think, oh, too much information. That's something that people say. Where um, did where did TMI come from? Is it Friends? Friends, it, yeah. It is, is it? Are you sure? Um, did yeah. I say that out loud? Did I say that out loud? It's also from Friends. Yeah, I'm pretty sure from it's from Friends. Okay. Yeah. An awful lot do come from Friends. Yeah. Um, Huge influential show. Massively, yeah. 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 What yeah. was that? Uh, I did a little sick in my mouth. I did, yes, that's, that's right. That's I, yeah, yeah, I did, and I did, I did a bit of poo or something, and there's lots of those sorts of... You know. A bit of poo. Yeah. When is it a poo and when is it a bit of poo? Because if yeah. you do a poo, <laughs> yeah. and you, that, that's a poo, isn't it? That is, yeah. that is a, a whole object. Yeah. It's not that you've, you've, only, you've only... I've only done a quarter of the poo it's I was intending to do. It's a half a hole is a hole, yeah. surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, the podcast took an unusual turn. <laughs> yes. And, uh, we've gone yes. down... We've got, I think we've gone through the brown door. Let's come back out. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's the poo door. Um, <laughs> do you know what, though? I think, we're, I think we should probably uh, yeah. wrap this up because um, we are going to record another podcast. In two for, weeks' time. In two weeks' time. Um, talking about uh, Jason's love of um, ever-decreasing circles. So we're going to talk about that um, next time. But just uh, to finish up, the, the, to wrap up, what sort of mistakes do you find yourself still making? Is it, you know, you talked, hinted at one with the fact that there's something here that's not right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sticking that's, out that's, thing. And that's, I mean, I what think other, that's an odd, what other mistakes do I think I'm, oh, dear, let's have a think. That's a really good question. I mean, for me, it's like, well, I'll give you thinking time. I started writing an, a sitcom script uh, too early the outline wasn't finished and it was like pulling teeth mm-hmm. and I now know that I need to have a better outline for example and every time I don't do that I think I'm good enough to get away without it and I'm not <laughs> and I keep discovering that yeah. I'm not yeah. so that's my kind of thing I don't know if, uh, I keep getting excited by new ideas uh, too often that's lethal isn't it that's, I, yeah. I worked I worked with someone we were Joel and I co-wrote something with someone I won't name the person because uh, because I'm not being very flattering about them but all, when we went back to the rewrites we went okay we've got this it's sort of it's running 29 pages we need to get it down to about 26 really so we sat in the room with this third writer and writer three just kept adding more and more material and finding more places to go there. It was all funny. It was all great stuff. Yeah. And it was not what the job needed that day. The job yeah. needed that day to say, we've just got to take scissors out here and, yeah. and say goodbye to things. Um, what, what, do I, what mistakes do I make? Um, 
I don't know because you know because there's two of us, Joel and I. Yeah. He he's going to spot the mistakes much sooner than I do, and I spot his as well. Oh, so which one? Here's a question. Um, in which case, because I, I when I write, I, I made my mistake because I wasn't with Richard. I was writing it as a Radio Wales show that I do on my own. Right. And therefore, Richard stops me from making mistakes. But we've talked about double acts before. One does the typing, and one to stare out the window. That's right. Yeah. What What do you two? So in my writing partnership, I come up with a load of ideas. And Richard tends to go, none of those will work except for the second one and the eighth one. Let's talk about those. So I tend to generate loads. And then Richard basically is very good at getting rid of stuff because he can see the floor straight away and that kind of thing. So we work well like that. What about you guys? How do you... Well, we, we, we often talk about the two sorts of writing partnerships. One is type and pace, where one person types and the other one mm. paces around the room. And the other one is write and swap. Right. Um, and that's what Joel and I do. That's what Fry and Laurie did. It's what Sam and Jesse do. So we actually, we actually, what we do is we find the ideas together. We'll sit and talk and have a pint and make lots and lots of notes and work out what it is we want to do. And then we'll go away and write bits each and then swap them and rewrite each mm. other's bits. And eventually, funniest thing wins. Yeah. Mm. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel like one of you tends to be... So also for me, Richard is a really good completer finisher. Um, he has much more stamina to be much more pedantic for much longer than I do, whereas I tend to move on a bit more quickly. But I tend to be slightly better with a blank page at the start, for example. Does it feel, how, how does it feel like from you, you know, although, so you're swappers, but yeah. do you, does one of you tend to be more, how about this, how about this, the other one tends to be more detailed? It's in, in, well, the... When it comes to writing the Ladybird books, there's not really... It's kind of... It's 50-50, really. There's not a lot of a difference in approach that we've got. But when we write um, scripts, for instance, Joel is much better at plot structure than I am. Right. And I'm much better at dialogue than he is. Okay. So we can kind of franchise bits out to each other. Because yeah, yeah. he'll look at... You know, we'll do the first read of a script and he'll go, right, well, there's too much weight on that thing in Act 1. Whereas I'm sitting there going, and uh, yeah, well, I've got about 55 lines that don't sound like dialogue, you know. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. So, 55 lines that no human being has ever yeah, actually yeah. said. Because people don't talk like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you what, I'll just put this bucket over here. No, that's not, that's, that, when, when a human being takes that bucket and puts it over there, what they say is nothing, literally nothing, <laughs> yeah. unless they think they're being watched or they've, or they've had a blow to the head or something. <laughs> Uh, we've got one question actually. I, uh, I got a question from uh, Paul Lamb on Twitter, um, and his question was um, What inspired you? What inspired me? I'm going to fold Joel into this as well because I think, I think what inspired us is probably the right answer. Uh, Monty Python, from which we learnt all our history, by the way. <laughs> the only reason I've heard of the Treaty of Utrecht is because some Welsh coal miners came to blows about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Monty Python was number one. Number two was a bit of Fry and Laurie, which I still think the first, the first and second series of that are among the finest bits of sketch comedy that will probably will ever be made. Yeah, absolutely sensational. Really yeah. Third thing was absolutely, which ah. we were nuts about, which is yeah. a lovely, silly, whimsical um, show with lots of sort of cartoonish elements to yeah. it, and is 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 it. It's not forgotten, it's, and it's not a footnote, but it does deserve to be talked about more. Rather neglected. It's yeah. back on radio now. It is, it is. Finished, I'm very pleased, finished, very very pleased to hear it back. And for me, it was um, also the spin-off Mr Don and Mr George. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is what I've, I'm trying to write to some extent now 
for this Radio Wales show, Be Lucky, there's an element of Mr Don and Mr George and Oh boy, it's a lot harder than it looks. No, the, the, wasn't the first, wasn't the title of the first episode of Mr. Don and Mr. George? You can run, but you can't hide your legs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. They ended up in cardboard suburbia at one point. That's right. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, that's great. George, you've eaten my future. I think was another episode <laughs> where he ended up eating all of the cornflakes or something. Oh, um, very no, fine. Amazing, oh, amazing. Great. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much um, for being on the podcast, Jason. Thanks for letting me into the podcast. Not at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, just to say to the listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Sitcom Geek. I'm co- at Cohen Dave. And Jason, you are. I'm uh, at Jason Hazley. Mm. Very good. Enigmatic. Much, much Enigmatic, originality yes. between Hiding us in plain sight. Um, I uh, also would like to say you can follow us on Facebook mm. on Sitcom Geeks. And uh, email us, sitcomgeeks at gmail.com. And, um, but that's about it. Um, we, can buy, we, we have books available, etc. Mm. Um, <laughs> Mugs, <sorry>. t-shirts. <laughs> yes. That's what I like. You really sell the sizzle. Really right? sell the stuff. Yeah. We, we have, have books available. Yes, that's right. Um, you that's have good. This is a bit like I went past, I was driving through uh, Wales a little while ago and I went through a village that manifestly only had one pub and it had a huge sign on it saying probably the best pub in the village (laughs) (laughs) that's great love it well that's about yes that's about up with our marketing anyway uh, thank you very much uh, for listening and speak to you next time bye 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 bye